Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We always appreciate being included as a part of your day. And what a day it's shaping up to be for the commodities industry. Right now, we've got the commodities market on the grain side trading mixed. Corn is mixed. Beans slightly higher on the day. And wheat is mixed amongst all classes. We're waiting on this uh, report to come out later this morning from the USDA. We've got prospective plantings and quarterly grain stocks. We'll dig in to those details on the next AOA with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist from Stonex. Today, however, we're going to talk about an update to margin protection insurance with uh, Marsha Bunger, administrative, uh, Administrator of the Risk Management Administration here in just a moment. Then we're going to talk with Daryl Peel of Oklahoma State University about the cattle complex and what he sees coming in the future. And then in segment three, we're going to check back in on the banking situation. Ann Belser, Senior Executive Vice President of Government Affairs for the Independent Community Bankers of America, will be joining us. Before the end of the show, we're going to talk with Norita Taylor about some new legislation that might open up some more opportunities for trucks to park and take a break at the end of their hours of service. So before we dive into all of that, however, let's talk a little bit about some changes coming from the USDA's Risk Management Administration. Administrator Bunger, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Let's talk about this big announcement happened yesterday. We are seeing margin protection insurance rolled out to many more counties across the country. Administrator Bunger, let's talk first. What is MP for folks who might not be familiar with it? Certainly. Margin protection provides you coverage against um, unexpected decrease in your operating margin. So it would be margin less input costs. Margin protection is an area-based using county-level estimates of average revenue and input costs to establish the amount of coverage and indemnity payments. Because margin protection is an area-based average of your county, it may not reflect your individual experience. A payment may be made when the harvest margin for the county is lower than the trigger margin due to a decrease in revenue and or increase in input costs. Margin protection will cover a portion of that shortfall. And so, yes, we are excited to announce that we've expanded the opportunity in several states and several counties. Currently, so before this announcement, there were 12 states and 780 counties with margin protection for beans. And after this expansion, there are now 34 states and 2,066 counties. Um, Currently, for corn, there were 12 states and 793 counties. And in essence, for corn, margin, expand, margin protection has expanded now to the lower 48. And so that's a total of 2,521 counties. Well, that is a huge expansion. And when we think about margin protection in practice, Marcia, that's been around since 2016, as you mentioned, a number of producers have used it. And what's been the feedback so far from the program? I think it's the tell of how much we've expanded it. We've received a lot of feedback asking for the expansion. Um, and um, so obviously we're responding to that at RMA. 
with the 508H process. This is a private submission that comes through the Federal Crop Insurance Corporation Board. And um, we work with the private submitter along with our own people to make sure that we're continuing to make it actuarially sound and that we are um, implementing the necessary guardrails to keep it um, sound as far as integrity. Um, I think people need to, though, understand that it is a little bit more complicated um, because while it's available, it may not always be what you need for your operation. So please, 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 you know, sit down and take the time with your crop insurance agent to have them explain the different scenarios as a result. I think because of the fact that we've looked back this many years, there's been enough scenarios to, to work through and talk through so that the producer really understands what he's buying. Absolutely. And it, as we think about margin protection, particularly for those new growers who now have access to it, Marsha, is it possible to layer margin protection with yield protection, revenue protection, the other insurance products that are out there? It is. And so great, great segue. Um, you can buy just margin protection, so it's not a requirement to have an underlying um, traditional policy, but yet at the same time, if you want that expanded coverage, um, that would be also an opportunity to look at combining revenue protection and yield protection with a margin protection endorsement. Absolutely. Now, Administrator Bunger, of course, you're not just on the administrative side. You also get your, your fingernails dirty in the ground there. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your operation in South Dakota? Are these products that you've utilized? I would love to. Thank you for that question. Um, my husband and I farm in the sub southeastern part of South Dakota. We have a 1,200-acre um, row crop farm, corn and beans. We do a little bit with oats. Um, we have a 200 head cow-calf operation. Um, and so of course, we not only market and sell our grain, but we're also feeding um, livestock. So it's, it's a diverse operation. Um, you know, we've now been farming 41 years and the last 27, we've had crop insurance and it has been a cornerstone. Um, it's a very vital, aspect of maintaining our operation. Um, you know, in the years past, we've seen in this part of the country anyway, drought, excessive moisture. Um, in the last year, I've seen my first derecho. Um, so farmers do a great job. They work hard. And so I am just happy that we're able to continue to provide tools in the toolbox for them to mitigate the the unknowns of what weather can do to their um to their to their operation absolutely weather can throw everybody a curveball marcia this change was announced yesterday it does take some time to put into practice can you fill us in on the timeline when will producers be able to sign up for this what crop year will it apply in thank you yes they will start to be able to talk to their agents and sign up for it in June of this summer, and it would become effective for the 2023, or I'm sorry, because we are in the 23, it would become effective for the next crop year, so for 24. All right, folks, it is coming up. It's getting on us very soon. Administrator Bunger, if folks want to learn more about this announcement, where can they go at the USDA website to read more about it in detail? Yes, please go to www.rma.usda.gov 
www.ncpsafe.gov to see what we have for information there. But again, as a former crop insurance agent, I would really encourage producers to contact their own crop insurance agent and start to get into the weeds um, fairly soon. Um, you know, I think about how busy things are going to be getting for farmers. They're going to be planting, spraying, um, cutting hay. Um, but June is when I think agents will first become available to talk to. Fantastic, folks. Check that out. Talk with your agent. You likely now do have margin protection available for that 24 season. Our thanks to Administrator Marsha Bunger of the RMA. Marsha, thanks for joining us today. Thank you and have a great day. And folks, stick around. We'll be talking with Dr. Daryl Peel of Oklahoma State University here when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the King of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and medical expenses are covered. If you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over 60, call 24-7. 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. win. 
We, 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 we are, are the, the Foundation, Foundation Fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are Fighting Blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. As we mentioned at the top of the show, the grain markets are trading with some trepidation today as they await the release from the USDA of the prospective plantings and that quarterly grain stocks report coming out later on this morning. But on the livestock side of the trade, we are off like a rocket. Cattle, feeder cattle, all higher. Lean hogs also higher on the day. Joining us for a discussion of the protein markets in this country is Dr. Daryl Peel, agribusiness professor at Oklahoma State University. Dr. Peel, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. It's uh, great to visit with you this morning. Boy, and it's a great day to be looking to sell some cattle. Daryl, we are seeing this rally continue. It seems as if this market has had a weight lifted off its sh shoulders for the past week. Is this that outside market fear kind of falling away a little bit? I think that's part of it. You know, obviously the uh, the macroeconomic jitters uh, have spilled over into the protein complex. We're pretty sensitive to that from the standpoint of, of consumer demand. And I think some of that's settling down. You know, we're still watching that, uh, but um, you know, the, so far uh, we continue to see a strong uh, performance from a demand standpoint. And obviously the supply fundamentals are increasingly supportive in the, in the cattle markets. Absolutely. We have been talking about this tightening supply situation, Daryl, it seems like uh, since 2020. Now it's starting to register here with the trade. As we think back to that recent cattle on feed report from last week, was there anything in there that really shocked you? Well, I think the report was generally pretty well anticipated, but if you look longer term, you know, we, we spent most of last year really anticipating that we would sort of turn the corner, if you will, and see these tighter feeder cattle supplies catch up to the feedlot level. And it, and it finally began to happen late in the year. And so now with each month, uh, the, you know, the placements are down, the cattle on feed inventory is down. We're starting to pull down those average, you know, I look at a 12 month moving average of cattle on feed, which takes out the seasonality. That thing is clearly is going down now and, and will continue down, I think, for many months going forward. Yeah, do you see this decline extending through all of 23 and into 24 as of now, uh, Daryl? Is that where you see this uh, cattle on feed numbers trending? I, I do. I think we'll continue down through 23. I, the low will happen not sooner than 2024. And I think we have to kind of wait and see. For one thing, uh, you know, we're still in a drought in enough of the country and we're still liquidating uh, in total, I think. I think the beef cow herd will probably continue to fall a bit in 2023, probably not as much as it has the last two years. Uh, so we're, we're, you know, we're going to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, many months away, I think, from seeing uh, the real lows in this, uh, in this uh, cycle and the, and the drought impacts that have come with it. Daryl, you mentioned the drought again. Of course, Oklahoma has been the bullseye of this drought since, uh, well, since La Nina got started here three years ago. You mentioned that the producers in your state are still liquidating. Does it look like that trend is going to continue across the entire state of Oklahoma or is somebody getting relief down there? You know, what's happened the last uh, few weeks in Oklahoma, the, the, uh, the drought has kind of re uh, receded a little bit from the east side. So in eastern Oklahoma, southeastern Oklahoma, 
Uh, and, you know, if you look up into Kansas, kind of the same thing. There's a pocket in northeast uh, Kansas where the drought has been pretty well eliminated. And what we've got in Oklahoma is this very sharp demarcation between some very wet areas. Producers are in good shape. I was down in southern Oklahoma just a few nights ago. Uh, those producers uh, are in pretty good shape. On the other hand, the week before that, I was in northwest Oklahoma, and the drought conditions are absolutely devastating up there. Um, you know, cattle look tough. If anybody that's held on to cattle, they're not in good shape. You know, pastures limited. We didn't have any wheat grazing to, to speak of. And most importantly of all, in many cases, the ponds are dry. So that's forcing the hand on some of these guys. Absolutely. And winter wheat acreage, of course, that is traditionally a grazing ground for those stockers coming off that pasture. Daryl, is there much winter wheat at all for those cattle to graze across Oklahoma? You know, there's not a lot in, in, in those worst drought areas. There are some other areas where the wheat went in late. We didn't get the normal winter grazing. We didn't do the usual stalker thing, but it, the, the wheat was there. And once it finally kind of took off this spring, there's a little bit of grazing in some areas. And then obviously, depending on where you are, some places have had a little more moisture, but in total, it's much more limited than normal. All right, Daryl, I, I want to turn the focus here to the markets a little bit. Uh, watching the, the feeder cattle trade today, we're seeing April feeders up nearly $2. The May contract is up over $2. It's a huge day in feeder cattle. And then if I take a look at the corn board, we've still got summer corn at $6.30 a bushel. Daryl, how are these guys' calculators working to get fired up about feeders with 630 corn? Well, you know, it's a real challenge, particularly when you look at that feedlot level. Obviously, cost of gain continues very high, and it doesn't look like we're going to see any real relief from that from the standpoint of the, of the corn market. Uh, at the same time, um, you know, the reality of the supply situation in feeder cattle markets is uh, uh, the numbers are going to win. So, uh, you know, feedlots are doing everything they can to try to uh, uh, you know, move around the impacts of, of the higher feed cost and so on. But at the end of the day, uh, if they, you know, they've got to have some cattle, they're probably going to have trouble keeping their volumes up. We talked about feedlot inventories declining and those feeder cattle are going to continue to get expensive just on the heels of the supply fundamentals from a cattle standpoint. Well, I think you're right. I mean, those feeder cattle, the demand is out there. Daryl, do you have offhand what sort of expected live cattle price would we need to see for these feeders that are being bought at uh, 220 bucks a hundred? Are, are we going to need to see $190, $200 fat cattle to make them pencil in this environment? Well, you know, I haven't actually run that budget recently, but you know, that's probably where we're headed. Um, you know, and, and, and what's happening right now in, in general in the, in the entire cattle in complex is of course all the supply pressures coming from the bottom up, right? It's it's coming from the calves, the, the decrease in the cow herd, the smaller calf crops. And so everybody above the cow calf level is a margin operator, whether you're a stocker producer buying calves and selling feeder cattle, feedlots buying feeder cattle, selling fed cattle, or packers buying fed cattle and selling meat. All of those margins are getting squeezed from the bottom up and that squeeze is gonna continue. Now, eventually the top side of those margins will, will pass along some of that uh, as, as, as markets do their thing. But uh, in, in any event, every one of those operations is going to see significant squeeze in those margins. And I think right now, you know, feedlots are beginning to see it. Packers are already experiencing it. Uh, and that's going to continue for the foreseeable future. I'm really glad you brought that point up. We've talked so much over the past three years about the incredibly large Packer margins. But Daryl, they're being squeezed as we speak currently? 
Oh yeah, uh, you know the nature of this business. They have had uh, you know larger margins uh, the last few years. They're going to give a whole bunch of that back in the next uh, two to three years. All right. In order to see that margin expand, in order to push that top line market higher, we've got to keep that consumer out there buying this high value protein. Daryl, what have you seen lately with regard to that choice select spread? Is it telling us anything about the ability of consumers to continue buying? Well, you know, I've been watching for a long time, uh, you know, a couple of things. One is the choice select spread and it's behaving pretty much seasonally right now. It's a little bit late, uh, normally reaches a seasonal low, typically in February. It looks like we're about at that seasonal low now here in, at the end of March, uh, but it's actually behaving pretty seasonal. The other thing that I've been looking at, we talk about consumers trading down uh, from higher valued products to, to more value-based cuts when, uh, when they get squeezed on the demand side. And honestly, uh, I haven't been able to detect it at the wholesale level very much yet. We'll continue to look for it as the supply of beef in general continues to decline through the year. Uh, there will be more rationing of beef, if you will. And I think some consumers will change their behavior a little bit. But we honestly haven't seen a whole lot of it at this point in time. You know, that's a really good point, Daryl. We also haven't seen a world in which large-scale beef imports make a lot of economic sense. But as we look ahead to 2023, I'm worried that this might be the year we see beef imports to the U.S. start to surge. Is that a concern that you have, or am I uh, reading too much into this market? Well, I do think we'll likely see some increase in beef imports. Uh, part of it, again, is just the basic supply fundamentals. We're going to have tight supplies in the U.S., in particular, most of those imports, of course, are processing beef that really support our ground beef market. And one of the things that's going to happen in 2023, after two years of elevated beef cow slaughter, uh, cattle cow slaughter in general, uh, we're going to see us, we are seeing now a very sharp drop in cow slaughter. So uh, in order to continue to support that ground beef market, uh, which will be really important as other cuts of beef get more expensive, uh, we're inevitably going to see uh, an increase in, in beef imports. By the same token, we're going to see probably some reduction in beef exports from last year's record level as we go forward. It's a combination of the supply, the overall price level, and the continued uh, strength of the U.S. dollar, relatively speaking, which makes exports a little more challenging and imports a little more attractive. It certainly does. All those factors will be at play in the upcoming year, folks. If you're in the cattle business, keep your head on a swivel. It is going to be a volatile year. We've been talking with Dr. Daryl Peel, agribusiness professor at Oklahoma State University. And Dr. Peel, thanks so much for joining us here today. You bet. Thank you very much. And folks, stay tuned. When AOA comes back, we're going to talk with Ann Balser and Gus Barker, representatives of the Independent Community Bankers of America. We're going to get the rundown on how rural and community banks are faring after these past few weeks. Stay here for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Pride. It runs deep for those in agriculture. But that pride can also prevent farmers from asking for help when it's needed most. An injury, illness, or natural disaster is a heavy burden for any operation to bear. Farm Rescue is here to help shoulder that burden. We are a nonprofit organization helping farm families in crisis with free planting, haying, and harvesting assistance. There is no pride lost when it comes to Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. 
Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, the market trade ahead of USDA's quarterly grain stocks and prospective plantings report trading relatively mixed. Traders just acting cautious heading into the highly anticipated reports as we are expecting plenty of volatility, especially with those quarterly grain stocks numbers, but also the prospective plantings number being watched very closely as there is a wide range of pre-report expectations. No one really knows exactly where USDA is going to land with their prospective plantings report. We're going to be watching that closely to see how things shake out and how the trade reacts to it, expecting a very volatile trade today through the close, and then traders will be able to assess and reset heading into next week's trading session. Of course, it's kind of the kickoff to spring planting season. We'll be watching the weather forecast and supply and demand fundamentals as we move forward. Overall, again, heading into the report, corn just mixed a penny or two either side of unchanged beans up around three to five wheat markets mixed anywhere from two to four higher to two to four lower uh, cattle trade up moderately feeder cattle with april taking over its lead month over the 200 dollars mark on the board now showing good strength there while the hog trade is lightly mixed with the deferreds up a little bit and the front months down a little bit that quarterly hogs and pigs report that came out thursday was pretty much exactly in line with pre-report expectations so not really being traded much by the trade on friday Stock futures got a little bit of a pop this morning when the latest per personal consumption and expenditures data was released, revealing easing inflation pressures for the U.S. economy. The Dow Jones up around 160, 170. Crude oil up about a dollar at 75.27. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes. Go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to 
ladies and gentlemen, to AOA for the past three weeks as we have been talking about the broader outside market impacts on the world of agriculture. They've kind of come back to one thing, and that's the the controversy surrounding banking in this country after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in New York City. And that had me wondering how are banks across the countryside faring in this volatile environment? Well, joining us today for an update on community banks across America, we're going to be speaking with Ann Balser. She is the Senior Executive Vice President for Government Affairs at the Independent Community Bankers of America. And Ann, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. We're also going to be talking with Gus Barker. He's the President and CEO of First Community Bank in Newell, Iowa. And Gus, appreciate you joining us today. Hey, I appreciate being here. Thank you, Mike. Let's take a step back, get a look on the read of things at the 10,000-foot level, and if you would, could you break down for us what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature? Do we have a minute or two to at least get the facts right on that situation? We certainly do. You know, the the facts surrounding the abrupt you know, failure of both Signature, excuse me, Silicon Valley and, and Signature Bank really stemmed from the business practices at each bank. These are pretty large banks. You know, these aren't the banks that are the ICBA members. These are, you know, banks with over 100 billion in assets that had a concentration in deposits in some pretty volatile industries, whether it was cryptocurrency or, you know, venture capital funds. Um, and they, also had to make things, you know, a little bit more risky or that exposed them to additional risk was they invested their, you know, the, the cash on hand, if you if you will, in um, long term, you know, investments like treasury bonds and, and other securities um, that were not easily you know, converted to cash or, or easily liquid and uh, had very long duration. So when the Federal Reserve started raising rates and they saw, you know, a significant decline in those investment portfolios, coupled with, you know, volatile industries that they banked, um, it, it created a real liquidity crunch for them and they weren't able to really cover it. So the, the Federal Reserve with the FDIC and the U.S. Treasury stepped in and took the um, both banks into receivership um, to, you know, essentially stop the bleeding, ensure that depositors weren't going to take losses as a result of runs on those two banks that were, you know, leading up to the the, the failure. Um, and in doing so, the you know all the all the depositors, even those that were had deposits in excess of you know the typical um, insurance limits um, of two hundred fifty thousand you know per depositor, um, all were were made whole as a result. Um, and as as you mentioned in your opening remarks, that has created you know some turmoil, um, really more in the equity markets than than what we're seeing with our our bank members. Um, however, you know, certainly we, we've been watching it very closely. The good news is for community banks, um, despite what we're seeing and, and hearing about in the media, um, you know, it's it's still business as usual. Um, you know, it's still uh, our, our banks are still operating and uh, and ready to serve their customers and their communities. That's the thing. And I'm really glad you brought that up is the the difference in scale and in function between these banks, SVB, 100 billion plus dollar bank working in crypto and, mm -hmm. and you know new technologies and so on. Gus, you're dealing with the opposite there in Newell, Iowa. You're dealing with folks who are, who are making things, growing things. Let me ask you, we've seen deposits increase at rural banks here over the past few years as the farm economy has been fairly well. How do how does 
First Community Bank of Newell differ from SVB and how you handle these risks? Well, you know, uh, we want our deposits invested locally, Mike, and, you know, we do that mostly with uh, local loans. Uh, 80% of my loans are ag-related and uh, in our local community. Uh, if I have excess funds, I also want to invest in municipal bonds that support our local projects for the city and schools, and then anything else in short to mid-length government-backed bonds. The big thing is we know our customers and they know us. Absolutely. That's what it comes back to is that human connection makes a huge difference. And I'm, I'm wondering then, Anne, if we bring the focus back to you, you mentioned that we have seen a lot of Federal Reserve action over the past three weeks. From the ICBA's perspective, are, are they doing the right thing? It's it's quite a quite a question. Are they doing the right thing? You know, they we give them the benefit of the doubt that using the facts and information they had at the time, um, that you know they with the FDIC stepped in to uh, you know shore up the the depositors and really you know restore some confidence in the markets following the SVB collapse. However, you know one of the the alarming things that we see um, is there you know where were the regulators? Where was the the Federal Reserve and the other regulators um, at the time? You know in the the days, months, even years leading up to you know, such a dramatic collapse of a very large bank. We know from our smaller banks, our community banks are already, you know, so overly burdened with regulation and examined with scrutiny that really just, you know, defies logic when you think of, of sort of the risk taking and as Gus was describing his model, um, and which is, is very similar to that of all of our community banks that are vested within their communities, not taking risk, you know, that that's going to, um, you know, create any type of uh, loss really for their, their customers or their communities. So the, the regulators in this case in the Federal Reserve, which had oversight authority for Silicon Valley Bank, you know, had the tools they needed, you know, they, they don't need more regulation. It's just a matter of whether or not they appropriately uh, were supervising a bank that was growing rapidly uh, and with, with pretty uh, vulnerable exposure. Yes, that's so true. And I think that raises an interesting question. Gus, you work with the FDIC all the time from the perspective of a community bank. And what would you like to see or how would you like to see the Fed's response to this be different? Or, or do you feel like they're doing the right job? Well, I think what we really need to see is the media and uh, regulators and Congress realize that there is a big difference between a community bank and those much riskier institutions. And we don't need to pay for the mistakes of mismanagement at those other places out here in central Iowa. Um, it seems to always be knee-jerk rules and regulations that get applied to all of us no matter the size or risk. For example, yesterday, the CFPB put in place an almost 900-page new rule called 1071, and that's going to put a burden on banks. It requires us to report information on our local small business loans. And what's the purpose for requiring that information? Well, we're not sure about that. Uh, many of the rules and regulations we have, Mike, uh, we report information and it goes to D.C. and sits in a bin somewhere until somebody decides to look at it and make a case for something. 
Okay, so that's 900 pages dropped yesterday. Nicole, we're also seeing here, or we're also hearing concerns that maybe banks need to chip in to cover some of the losses over these SVP and signature bailouts. What does ICBA think about all of this? Yeah, so that's a great point that when a bank fails, and in this case, um, with Silicon Valley Bank's failure, it's estimating, it's estimated to cost about over 20 billion in loss to the deposit insurance fund. And so the deposit insurance fund is exactly as it sounds. So when you put your money in a bank, there is deposit insurance. So you know if the bank fails, um, you know, certain amounts and in certain accounts are covered and, and essentially guaranteed, if you will, um, by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So banks pay into that fund. Um, these are assessments on banks. So it's not taxpayer dollars. These are bank funded. Uh, in the case of the Silicon Valley Bank failure, um, they, the FDIC now needs to basically replenish the coffers, if you think about it in, in those terms, and go back and go back to the banks that contribute to the, the fund and say, okay, you know, time to pay up. We have to cover this loss. Um, and we at ICBA have been adamant um, working with our, our banks, like like with Gus, um, just letting the the um, FDIC board know that this should not be a cost that gets, um, you know, passed along to our community banks. Uh, you know, our community banks aren't the ones that are taking these risks. They're not the one creating losses um, and really the, the tumultuous environment um, based on the fallout of, of these bank failures. So uh, we are you know, vehemently opposed. I don't even know if that's a strong enough word to characterize um, how how much, uh, you know, our banks are, you know, just absolutely opposed to, to having to pay to cover for um, the mistakes and, you know, really the, the, the sins of the riskiest banks that are out there. Well, I mean, I think that's that's a fair assumption. I bank with a community bank in Iowa. I don't want to see my fees go up because they weren't managing their risk over on the coast. Now, and uh, in our time that we've got left here, as you look out to the future, what is ICBA encouraging the Fed to do? What's the, the message you want to get through here uh, about the banking crisis, particularly from the independent community bankers of America's perspective? Well, we want to uh, ensure that they keep understanding and, and differentiating community banks from the Wall Street banks, from the mega banks that are taking these risks. We also want our, you know, your listeners to uh, connect with their community banks, connect with their bankers. That's what sets us apart. We are here. We are invested in your communities. Um, we are financing rural and agricultural um, communities and, and farm loans. Um, that's what we do. Um, so we're hoping that they stay engaged. Um, we're hoping that any bankers listening, you know, continue to to reach out. We need to see a um, we need to see a strong farm bill, um, you know, with with crop insurance, with safety nets, and increased you know guarantees for USDA loans. So there are plenty of ways, you know, stay engaged, stay informed. And if you need to find a community bank, uh, if you are banking with with one of the Wall Street or the mega banks. You know, go to uh, www.banklocally.org and you can find a community bank right in your neighborhood. Absolutely. And maybe it'll be First Community Bank of Newell. Our thanks to Gus Barker and our thanks to Ann Balser. Thank you. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel, fueled by innovation, powered to perform. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. A good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. 
your kidneys could keep filtering, and your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. In this third installment in a six-week series, Nelson Neal, the head of CHS Global Research, describes another trend shaping the future of agriculture. Today, we're talking technology. Nelson, you've pointed to three key trends in technology that are affecting agriculture. What are those three trends? First, let's talk about RPAs, or robotic process automation. These are packages of software that can execute a lot of the daily and mundane tasks that sometimes happen in a business. So anything I human can do with a computer, an RPA can likely execute against it as well. Think about spreadsheet work, think about sending out invoices, think about sending out daily barge schedules or basis prices. A lot of the stuff that happens at the farm and ag retail level can be executed by this RPA concept, especially when you consider labor and some of the issues we're having both domestically and globally and certainly within agriculture. This may be a partial solution to that issue. Second technology is drones. I think drones have certainly hit their mark in terms of agronomy and crop scouting, understanding where we have disease pressure if possible. But there are other uses for drones in agriculture. You can use a drone to count livestock head, for example. We can use drones to make a volumetric calculation of a ground pile of corn or of soybeans and understand how many bushels we have. And the third is this concept of autonomous vehicles. Certainly, we've got application and launch of autonomous tractors, uh, but you kind of see it all around us. I think the American Trucking Association, if I'm not mistaken, forecasts that we might be short over 100,000 truck drivers by the year 2030. So we've got to find solutions. And you'll see that I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 44 states have approved autonomous semi-truck driver testing. So that's probably the, the third leg of the technology stool that I think will have longer term implications on agriculture. That's Nelson Neal, head of CHS Global Research. Thank you for joining us here around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work, 
by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for joining us today for AOA, ladies and gentlemen. As we get deeper and deeper into spring, we'll see the ag industry of this country ramp up. We'll get those seeds in the ground. We'll get that fertilizer spread. We'll work to produce that crop for this next growing year. But if we don't have truckers moving all of our input supplies to where they need to be, we will not have a crop coming this year at all. The importance of truck freight to our industry and to the world at large remains huge in 2023, and it's vital that we keep those folks moving that freight safe. Recently, we had a bipartisan bill introduced in both the House and the Senate to hopefully make that job a little safer. Joining us for an update is Norita Taylor. She's the Director of Public Relations for the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association, and Norita, we're celebrating some potential forward progress on truck parking, aren't we? That's right. It's uh, really good news in a number of ways. Uh, it's not only um, bipartisan, but it's um, bicameral, which means that it's uh, been introduced by both the Senate and the House, which is not unheard of, but not very common. And so for those reasons and for the reasons that we've been, you know, working on this for so long and we know it's an important issue, we definitely are enthused about this going forward. Absolutely. So this is the Truck Parking Safety Improvement Act introduced, as you mentioned, both in the Senate and in the House. Bipartisan support. Norita, why do we need this Truck Parking Safety Act? What's the hang up here with truck parking across the country? Well, you know, it's really um, something that we've been hearing from our members and from truck drivers for a number of years. There's been study after study by the federal government and other researchers, and we've known it's true. There's, there's the information, the stats to back it up, that there's about one trucking spa parking space for every 11 trucks. And so that's a big problem because truck drivers also have to comply with hours of service regulations, and they need to rest while they're out on the road. And so this is something that we've been working on, We know, and we want to thank our members and anyone out there who has contacted your lawmakers to tell them the challenges you face in uh, finding a place to park just to do your job. And that's the key. That's, you've got to get the, that time off the road in order to reset that HOS. Norita, if you would, talk to us a little bit about how this particular bill would improve truck parking. Are we just going to start building uh, parking facilities all over the country? 
Well, I hope so. I hope that we'll be able to do that and also expand or add rest areas. Basically, the long and short of it is that the Truck Parking Safety Improvement Act will put up $755 million for the expansion of truck parking capacity. And the way that that has been written is so that any monies that are used from that fund to increase parking cannot be um, paid parking. So this is going to be for free parking for truck drivers as they do their jobs out on the road. That is good to hear. Now, as we mentioned, this does have bipartisan support, but we saw this introduced last year, Narita. Have there been some changes that make you think maybe this year it can, can get across the finish line and provide some relief to truckers? Well, like we said earlier, the, one of the big changes is that this has been introduced um, by both Republicans and Democrats on, on, and on both sides of Congress. That's a big push. That's, a bit, that's big news here. But as we all know, the work is only just begun. You still have got to get in touch with your lawmakers. And the good news is that we've made it easy. We have a website, a page dedicated just to this issue that makes it very easy for listeners to contact their lawmakers. It's at fightingfortruckers.com. We've got the fields to fill in, a way to find your specific lawmakers on each side of Congress, and a way for you to personalize your experience in trying to find parking spaces and how it affects you as a small business trucker or a truck driver. It's amazing, folks, when you tell your personal story, when you give these regulators the the tools they need to understand why this is the way it is on the ground, what you experience with your boots, it makes a difference. These folks just might not be familiar with the industry, so telling them how their decisions impact you certainly can make a difference. Norita, would you tell us that website one more time so folks can get on there and, and explain why this is so crucial for them and their business and their family? Sure. So if you just simply go to fightingfortruckers.com. Right there on the front of the page, we have a link that goes to uh, a set of fields and information. Some of it's pre-filled out for you, such as the, um, the name of the bills. It's S1034 in the Senate and HR 2367 on the House side. But you don't have to try to remember all of that. You just need to go there fill in your own information, share your experience and why on why this is important to you and why we need to move forward with this important legislation. Absolutely, folks. Be active. Make sure they know how this can make a difference out in the countryside. Norita, while we let you go from the perspective of the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association, are there any other issues we should push for when we're reaching out to our congressional representatives? Well, you should always be communicating with your lawmakers in Congress, whether it's the Senate side or the House side, or even in your own states. You should be sharing all of the things that are challenging to you in, in complying with uh, regulations, in how you're treated by shippers and receivers, brokers. There's so many issues going on in the industry and so many challenges. You need to be talking about all of those things with your lawmakers because if they don't hear it from you, they need to hear it from you as a constituent. You know, we as an association, we can communicate with them. We can streamline the information. We're up there talking to people in Washington, D.C., Voters, you are the ones who have the power here. You need to communicate and express how these things affect you and your business or your job. 
That is the name of the game. Tell the story to the folks who are making a difference and use those folks with a megaphone to help you. If you're a trucker, that could be OIDA. You can find them online at OOIDA.com or FightingForTruckers.com. We've been talking with Marita Taylor, the head of public affairs. And Marita, thanks for joining us today. Hey, anytime. Thank you. Bye-bye. And folks, tune in next time. We'll break down the numbers from the USDA on prospective plantings and quarterly grain stocks with Arlen Suderman next time on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Sometimes life is wonderful. And sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private Healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready, and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is $35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.